As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. A very warm welcome. I'm Justin Briley sitting down with Tom Wright to ask your questions again on today's episode of the podcast. It's produced by Premier in partnership with SBCK and N.T. Wright Online. So very glad you're with us for today's show as we draw once again on the thought and theology of Tom Wright, Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews, a celebrated author, theologian, and of course, occasional musician, as you will have heard if you've listened to previous podcast episodes. As ever, please do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Helps to let others know about the show. And today, Tom's going to be tackling your questions on women leadership and complementarian theology. Should be an interesting one. If you'd like more episodes from the show, updates, or want to ask a question yourself for a future program, then do register at our podcast website askntwrite.com now if you register now you'll also get access to bonus content such as tom answering Stuart in surrey's question what do you think about paul speaking in tongues that's only available to uh, subscribers so uh, go there register and you'll get access to that bonus video along with others Uh, anyone also who signed up to the newsletter by the end of march this year also gets automatically entered into a prize draw for one of three signed copies of Tom's translation of scripture, The Bible for Everyone. Uh, Tom has translated the whole of the New Testament and John Goldingay has done the Old Testament. So sign up now for the bonus videos, the prize draw, the newsletter, and of course, to ask a question if you want to. Loads of good reasons to become a newsletter subscriber at askntwrite.com. Let's get into today's edition of the podcast. It's great to be back with you, Tom, for another edition of the podcast. This is a particular issue that we're going to be digging into today that has divided lots of parts of Mm. the church, particularly in the last Mm. century or so, uh, women leadership. Just before we get into some of those questions, it would be interesting to know from your perspective as an Anglican, which has only in the relatively recent past Mm -hmm. begun to ordain women and Mm -hmm. so on, and only even more recently into the roles of bishops and so on. Uh, Has your thinking changed on this over the years in any way? Oh, yes, because, of course, I grew up in a church where clergy were male. And Mm. the most that a woman could do when I was growing up in – I was born in 48, so in the 50s and 60s – was to be a deaconess, 
which was like a deacon, but probably not actually presiding at services, except occasionally in rural churches when there wasn't a vicar around, Mm. as it were. And there were plenty of women doing plenty of things. One of my aunts was actually an Anglican nun and very active in the church, and then a deeply prayerful person of great um, personal spiritual leadership, and people used to go to her for for counsel and so on. So I've been used to women taking quite an interesting role rather than just passive, Mm. but not being ordained. Um, I suppose I started thinking more seriously about it when we were in Canada in the early 80s because I was in Montreal and Montreal had just decided they were going to ordain women and that was quite a a challenge for me and it forced me to go back and look at the various passages and particularly some of the ones we'll probably be talking about Mm. in a minute and I came out with the view that though I couldn't necessarily explain all the details of all the verses that are sometimes quoted again, um, there was a very strong groundswell of scriptural affirmation. In other words, this wasn't just, oh, I had seen women doing it and realized it was okay. Mm. There may have been a bit of that mm. kind of softening me up, making me ready mm. for the mm. fresh scriptural awareness. And then um, it's, it's basically all gone from there. Um, right. But I've had friends who have thought this and then thought that and have changed their mind this way and some who've changed their mind that way so yeah. I'm I'm very much aware of debates continuing and do you find yourself still able to work in concord with people who maybe do hold a very different position on that well I, I would certainly but um, they wouldn't necessarily so that mm. when I was Bishop of Durham for instance there was a group of clergy who because I was going to ordain women um, could not regard me as their bishop okay. because they were in a different, what we call a different integrity. How you can have two integrities is still quite tricky. Mm. Um, But I've always believed that this isn't something you should divide the church over, and that as with some other contentious issues, uh, the aim should be to live in such a way that doesn't make demands on one another's conscience, but may make demands on one another's charity. Mm. And that was hammered out by the Church of South India in the 1940s, when they wanted to bring together Anglicans, Methodists, and Presbyterians, etc. Um, and they would live for a while with demands on one another's charity, but without putting demands on one another's conscience. That is really, really important. Mm. And so that's what I've tried to model. And as with everything else, it isn't always easy. It doesn't always work the way you would like. Well, let's go to some of the questions. Um, Abby in Bournemouth asks, you know, a sort of general question on this front. What does the New Testament really say about the role of women and leadership in the church? Is it biblical for a woman to lead a congregation? Is it biblical for a woman to preach to a congregation of both men and women? And Abby's setting up some of the traditional sure, sort of sure. points at which people differ over exactly sure. where a woman's authority to lead and preach sure. occur in, sure. in a local sure. setting. Uh, as with many other things, I want to go to the resurrection. I want to go to the resurrection stories of Jesus in the in the first light of Easter Day. Uh, actually, you know, without the resurrection of Jesus, everything falls apart anyway. There is no Christianity. And within that culture... <clears throat> The idea that the prime witnesses to the most important event in the whole story would be women in tears is so counterintuitive that as a historian, I have to say, nobody would ever make up that story. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul quotes what is now the shaped up and polished tradition, the women have disappeared already by the early 50s. Mm. Here's our tradition, and we know that people aren't going to believe us if we say he appeared first to these Mm. women. Mm. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's all very clear the first person to see the risen Jesus were the women. 
and particularly the first people to be told to tell other people that Jesus is alive again, Mm. Mary Magdalene and the others. Now, all Christian ministry flows from the announcement that the crucified Jesus has been raised from the dead and is now the Lord of the world. And this is just a cultural revolution that Jesus had up till then chosen 12 men um, who all let him down in various ways. He now transforms that, this is part of the newness of new creation, it seems to me, by saying, now, actually, this extraordinary explosive message is so subversive that the best people to take it are strange women who no one's going to believe. Mm. (laughs) And indeed, the disciples themselves don't. But they were telling the truth. Mm. And it seems to me we need to inhabit that story and that way of looking at that story and say, so was this just a flash in the pan? Mm-hmm. And was this just, well, Jesus, you know, had a special thing about his mother or Mary Magdalene or whatever, but after that it all went. And the answer is absolutely not. Read Romans 16. Now, of course, most people studying Romans find it hard to get to chapter 8, <laughs> let alone 11 or let alone 16. But Romans 16 is explosive. Paul greets all these church leaders in Rome, many of whom are women who are church leaders in their own right, one of whom is an apostle, he says so, junior, and there's been a, a huge attempt to try to make out this as junior a man, but the scholarship is quite clear. This is a female name, and she is an apostle. For Paul, that means somebody who has seen the risen Jesus and is thereby commissioned to be an authorized representative. Mm-hmm. And here's the crunch. The first woman mentioned in Romans 16 is the bearer of the letter to Rome. Now, if you're Paul and you know in your bones you have just written a letter which is the most explosive piece of theological writing you can imagine. Who are you going to give it to, to take it to be read under Caesar's nose in Rome? Well, presumably some strong man. No, a deacon woman from the church in Cenchreae. We assume she's an independent businesswoman, Phoebe, and she's on the way to Rome. And what we know about um, the way letters worked in the ancient world was if you sent a letter via a friend or somebody, The chances are, you can't prove this, Mm. the chances are they will be the one to read it out. They might well be the one to explain it to people who, I mean, faced Mm. with Romans, we'd have a thousand, I'd have a thousand (laughs) questions. So, so Phoebe, tell us what, so the probability is that the first person to expound Paul's letter to the Romans was a woman, a deacon from the church in Kenkrei. And I want to say, get used to it, guys. You know, this is explosive, but it's the sort of thing that happens mm. when new creation is going forwards. And to row back from there and to say, well, you know, Paul didn't really mean that. And so now we've so I, I then want to say, what are the forces in our culture today, particularly, I have to say, in America, mm. which are forcing some churches and some people to fasten on one or two verses from elsewhere to say, oh, no, no, we can't have women doing this and that and the other, because That's a highly, highly selective reading of Scripture. And as with all other theological answers, the best place to start is with the resurrection of Jesus and then everything that flows out from there. So in summary, in a sense, to to Abby's question here, is it biblical for a woman to preach, uh, to lead a congregation of men and women? You would say, on balance, yes. I I would miss out on balance. I would just say, Say yes, yes. it is is biblical. Yes. Yes. There are particulars. I mean, do you want me to get to... Well, let's let's talk about that because that comes up in the next question. Lisa in California. Interesting, two two women asking these questions. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 13 to 15, though you could 
expand beyond that. Uh, can you explain what these verses have to do or say specifically about women teaching if they do at all? And specifically what your thoughts are on verse 15 in particular. Would you like to read that from Yeah, from yeah, Bible? yeah. Um, well, I think that there's, there's a few things to say. And, and let me say I've written a piece on this which is printed in my book, Surprised by Scripture. Mm. And uh, so – all I can do here is summarize some of the arguments. I've set it out more fully. And indeed, in Paul for Everyone, the pastoral epistles, there's, there's a chunk on it there. And th- those overlap inevitably. Uh, the first thing to say is that in verses 8 and 9 and 10, Paul is saying men and women don't go with the stereotypes. The men must lift up holy hands without getting angry and having arguments. In other words, men we all know about testosterone, just now you're Christians, learn to deal with that and don't be all sort of uh, power brokers and so on. Women don't think that your life is defined by having an elaborate hairdo or by having jewellery, because that just plays into the idea that women are the pretty little things, the decoration on the side while we men are doing the fighting, as it were. So he's saying, let's get rid of the stereotypes and learn a wise way of being human, which avoids those. In other words, it isn't that he's cross with women for wearing jewels. It's that don't get trapped in thinking that that's all that it means to be a woman, to be a, a pretty bit of decoration on the side. And then he says, this is my second main point, Um, A woman should learn in peace, in all submissiveness. But the idea, the word mantheneto, let her learn, is the same root from which we get mathetes, disciple. And hesukia is what you have if you're a student, you have the leisure to study. Um, the, The word scholar actually comes from having leisure to study. And it looks to me as though this is similar to what you have in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is in the home of Mary and Martha, where Mary, shock horror, is not in the back room where the women should be doing the cooking. Mm. She is in the front room sitting with the men disciples, which means she is in training to be herself a, a, a learner. And then it's like in, or, or somebody sitting at the feet of a rabbi is sooner or later going to be a rabbi themselves. I remember when I've, I had Paula Gooder on my mm. unbelievable podcast discussing this with uh, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, who takes the yes. view that it's all inherently sexist and patriarchal. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and Paula was keen to say, of course, it came out of a very patriarchal culture. So we're bound to see yeah, certain yeah, aspects yeah. of that. But pointed out that the, in this specific instance, Simply saying women should learn exactly. was exactly. Ex- quite, quite radical it, it in is. its day it and is. age. It is. And, and, and women would regularly, ever since Aristotle, who saw women as a deficient form of men, um, that actually women were regarded as, as not that sort of thing. And this, of course, has gone on in the Western world and still in some circles does to this day. But then um, the crucial thing then, I think, is the possibility, and it is only a possibility, that this is written to the context of Ephesus. And what we know about Ephesus in the first century is that, as we know in Acts, the great temple in Ephesus is Diana or Artemis in, in Greek. And the cult of Artemis, which has this vast temple, one of the wonders of the world, is a female-only cult. Mm. And various people have argued, this isn't my idea, but I think it has some mileage, that actually what Paul is opposing here is the idea, well, of course, we in Ephesus know that religion is basically a female thing. So if there are any men there, um, then the women is going to have to take over the leadership from them and uh, because we, we want to hold our heads up like 
uh, the Artemis priestesses, mm. um, where, where men aren't allowed to look in. And this would then be, verse 12 would then be, uh, a rebuke to that, that women should not usurp or try to take over authority from men. Now, I want to say, I don't know that that's what that means, but the key Greek word in the middle, authentine, um, is a very strange word, which when you look it up in the dictionary, it's got about 12 different meanings, one of which is actually to murder. I mean, it, it covers a huge range. Right. And then the question about the men there is, does this mean women shouldn't be usurping authority from any man or from their husbands, or they shouldn't be teaching their husbands as though there's a a husband-wife thing going on here, as though, yes, women teachers, fine, but maybe not if it's the – so I really don't know Mm. um, on that. And then the argument about Adam and Eve, um, rather like the one in First Corinthians 11. Um, if you read it out for us. Um, oh, oh, sorry, yes. A- Adam was made first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and um, got herself into trouble. And she, she, she became um, in transgression. I should um, make clear for those who can't see, but you're actually reading from the original Greek here. Uh, sorry, was translating that a problem? <laughs> it's just some people might assume, um, why, why is why is he sort of questioning how to do... You know, you, I just <laughs> want to make clear, you're not reading from an English Bible at this point. No, you're no, you're I mean, translating do, do that if you like. But, <laughs> but, okay. but I mean, so, so for Paul, yeah. this is a flicker of the Adam and Eve story. Right. And it's I've heard it expounded both ways. Mm. I've heard, well... Um, uh, Adam was not deceived, but he jolly well sinned, whereas the woman was deceived. So that's all the more fault for Adam. But you could read it as as that Adam was above that sort of thing. But in the story, Adam did eat. Mm. Um, so it's not quite clear to me, or not at the moment, the different ways of possibly reading that. And then verse 15, which was, was specified, that the woman will be saved through childbirth if she continues in faith and love and, and holiness with wisdom. Um, the the uh, the point there is that in Genesis three there is this uh, warning to the woman that you will have great pain in childbirth, which goes with the warning to the man that the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles, and you you'll have hard work digging mm-hmm. it. Um, and so it seems to be Paul saying, okay, that was the Eve problem, the Eve story, but that doesn't mean that all is now lost, that Eve will be saved through childbirth. It doesn't mean she'll only be saved if she gives birth to lots of children. It means that the the, the, the apparent curse on this painful childbirth is not the be-all and end-all right. that God will make the way through. Now, so see, all of that pretty well everything I've said could be contested and Mm -hmm. has been contested. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that is as good a way of reading the passage as any I've come across. And my question is, why have some people taken those three verses and made an entire church policy out of it and been very fierce about it, which Mm -hmm. has happened, particularly again in America? We thought we'd kind of got beyond that Mm -hmm. and it's now come back Mm -hmm. again. Um, What's going on in the culture to make people say this is the defining thing? when they miss out so many other things in the New Testament. You know, that's one little passage. How many times do we have teaching about riches and poverty in the New Testament? How many times do we have teaching about generosity to the poor and all of that? And many people who fixate on that mm. don't actually seem to bother about all mm. those other things at all. That's, that's the real problem here. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I hope that's been helpful, Lisa, on where Tom <laughs> goes on that particular passage, First Timothy two thirteen to 15. We'll be 
back with more of your questions in a moment. The Ask NT Write Anything podcast is brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Write Online. NT Write Online is the place where you can find all of Tom Wright's online theology courses taught by Tom himself in video format. Now, Tom's new book, Paul, A Biography, is available and you can get a podcast listener discount on the video teaching course on that particular book at ntwriteonline.org slash askntwrite. It's going to give you brilliant insight into the person of St. Paul and the extraordinary way he took the gospel from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. So that podcast listener discount of 75% off on the Paul A Biography video teaching course at ntwriteonline.org slash askntwrite. I mean, it opens up the whole question of what's sometimes been called the egalitarian and complementarian view of, yes, of men and women yes, in Scripture. Yes. And this is Thomas's question in Seattle. Um, says, what do you believe the Bible says about firstly women as pastors and elders? Well, we've sort of covered that. But he says, I believe more in complementarianism in the roles in church. And yet I struggle. Should I be updating my beliefs on this um so what do you understand to be this kind of complementarian view versus an egalitarian view? i think both of those words are misleading okay because it does seem to me that men and women are different Mm. and that psychologically biologically in all sorts of ways men and women are quite radically different which of course raises all sorts of other questions in our culture right now as well that's not to say that they're completely different. It seems to me that certainly what little I, I'm not a psychologist, but what I've read and what I know as a pastor, etc., is that there is a considerable overlap mm-hmm. so that uh, men tend to be this way out and women tend to be that way out but there are many many overlaps and there's a sense in which they are complementary in that sense precisely precisely and and you know vive la difference and all that um and if you do personality tests like the enneagram or the myers-briggs there is a preponderance in some ways more men are in this category than that and more women but there is lots and lots of overlap so um uh, but that doesn't mean equality. It doesn't mean identity. Okay. And in a sense, I saw this when we first ordained women. Uh, I was dean of Litchfield in the 90s. And the first ordination of women was, I think, 94 or 95, something like that. And many of the older clergy who had argued for the ordination of women for years had done so on the grounds that men and women were identical. So it was unjust. Right. We got a preacher for that occasion who was a Catholic woman, interestingly, Mary Gray, Professor Mary Gray. And she argued from the pulpit very strongly that we ought to ordain women because men and women are so different and God wants all these different <laughs> gifts in the ministry. Yeah, yeah. And some of the older modernists were horrified. This, like is, that, right? this is a postmodern mm. um, affirmation of difference mm. which seemed to challenge the identitarian solidarity. And I want to say that's the rich mixture of cultures we live in right now. Mm. As far as I can see, both from Scripture and from pastoral practice, etc. Men and women are very significantly different and are not interchangeable in that sense, and that God does want different giftedness right across the board um, in church leadership and ministry. And just to drop in as a footnote, Mm, mm. 1 Corinthians 11, whatever it means about Adam and Eve and wearing of hats, Paul envisages women leading in worship in that passage. So you think it is time for Thomas to update his beliefs on this? Uh, if if he doesn't think that women can lead in, in worship, then yes, he needs to update. Okay. What about in the family situation? Because that's the other area where yeah, yeah. we do get writings from Paul, Ephesians and so on. And what do you do with some of those sort of household rules and um, 
you know the, the famous one in Ephesians wives yeah, yeah, submit yeah. to your husbands and so on Actually, a lot of people read that and say oh there we go patriarchal Paul and, yeah, uh, product yeah. of his time and so on product of his time would never ever ever have written what he writes okay about slaves about children about about women um because a product of his time it would have been absolutely battening down the hatches yeah the the the, the man rules the roost and slaves and children and women watch out uh, your, give, your, your give us the trouble. context then I've, I've obviously cherry-picked a verse well there, well but. the 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 passage about husbands and wives in ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 begins submit to one another in the fear of the messiah and then the women to their own husbands as to the Lord. Um, but then he talks about husbands, love your wives as the Messiah loved the church and gave himself for her. Um, so that the, the, the role of the man there is incredibly demanding. It's think about Jesus going to the cross. Think about all the self-renunciation that went into that. Now, that's how you are to love your wives. That doesn't look like patriarchy to me. But what there is there in the context of a pagan city like Ephesus or Corinth or Rome or wherever it is, um, uh, what there is is a radically different way of life in which in this family there is mutual respect, mutual mutual enjoyment of different giftedness, um, and a relishing of the other to be the other, and to use our postmodern mm. language, in which the women are radically respected – as fellow Christians, not as subsidiary versions that we men are the real ones, and, and you know, there is uh, in that context of the pagan world, uh, I think those household codes are really revolutionary. Mm. And we have to remember that um, we are reading this after all the rhetoric about you know Victorian mores, etc. Although actually a lot of it was Georgian, mm. uh, as in 1920s and so on, um, and and so we react this way and that. But if you just go back to the classical world and read a few books, say um, uh, Robert Harris's novels on Cicero or Tom Holland's brilliant mm. books on, on the Roman Empire, imagine yourself living in that world and how women and slaves and so on were treated mm. then, and then read the household codes. Mm. I know which I'd rather be part of. <laughs> and in that sense, if we are to draw anything from Ephesians, it's that it's about mutual submission it, it, in that it, sense. Very specifically, um, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another and and uh, and Paul is seeing their marriage um, very riskily as uh, a reflection of something going on in Genesis 1 and 2, um, which fits with the whole of the rest of Ephesians, which is about heaven and earth coming together, mm. about Jews and Gentiles coming together, about men and women coming together, that there's something cosmic going on here, which is mutually affirmative. No surprises in our platonic Western world, we have discounted earth and think we can get to heaven. So we've discounted femininity and think that masculinity is where it is. No, actually, they both matter. Just to, to finish this off, um, and uh, I will, you know, plead my own um, uh, biases here. I'm married to a, a church minister, Lucy, and um, I once got into a conversation with a well-known um, evangelical Calvinist, Mark Driscoll, um, who was on mm -hmm. my podcast uh, many years ago at the height of his sort of fame. And, and he was very much, you know, uh, saw, saw ministry church leadership as just male. And he sort of challenged me in that podcast to say, well, how many men do you get along to your church? You know, uh, his, his view was, if you don't have a man leading, you won't attract men. And, and there's a sense in which other, I've heard that from other quarters mm -hmm, that we're, mm -hmm. we're at risk of a, a too feminized mm -hmm, version mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the church and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as it happens, I, I pushed back on that. I felt we were very well represented in both genders and that wasn't an issue in our church. Mm. But that's been the view, even if it's whether or not it's kind of um, supported from scripture. I think a lot yeah, of people yeah, say yeah, yeah, yeah. we need men at the front because yeah, yeah, yeah. they're the leaders. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it seems to me that was one of the possible takeaways from First Timothy 2, that if the women take over and say we're in charge now and you men get out of here, then everything is going to go out of kilter um, in ways that it's, it's perhaps hard to, to quantify. Um, I know that argument. I've run into it a few times. Um, I'd say that, that that's simply not, in fact, how it works. Um, and I don't know Mark Driscoll personally, and I, I haven't debated with him or anything. Um, but within the church, uh, God moves in many mysterious ways, and we mustn't be short-term about this. I mean, th- there is there is some wisdom in seeing how the complement- complementarity of men and women does work. For instance, the Curcio movement, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, mm. um, the, the little courses which came out of Spanish Catholicism after the Civil War, that they these were ways of bringing Christian spirituality back, back to ordinary folk. When my wife and I went on Curcio in Montreal, it was quite clearly organized that there were male Curcios and female Curcios, and and a woman could only go if uh, – a married woman could only go if her husband had already mm. gone in order to prevent any sense – that this was, oh, it's for the women, you know, right. et cetera. And I think there was a bit of earthy wisdom about that. Mm-hmm. But that was the same as that members of the congregation could only go if the rector of the parish had already been. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing they wanted was to have a little revolutionary group, oh, we're the real ones right. here, and the rector not knowing what right. was going on. So there was a kind of a, a, a wisdom about the stability there. They didn't want to be seen to be subverting the institutions. But that can be something that's helpful in a particular situation yeah, or cultural yeah, yeah, yeah. instance. And Curcio here in the UK, I think, um, uh, they, they have mixed right. Curcios. Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, if um, people want to follow up, as I said, on, on any of these issues, then uh, do go and check out all of the other things you can read about uh, from NT Wright on this front. Uh, and uh, do check out the resources available from our partners on the podcast, SBCK and NT Wright Online. Uh, that podcast I mentioned with Mark Driscoll from The Unbelievable Show, which is the other podcast I run, available, I think, if memory serves, Back in early 2012 was when we Mm. we put that out. So if you search in the archives, you'll find it there, that conversation. But uh, it's been another fascinating edition of our programme. Good to be be talking with you And I look forward to seeing you again next time. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for being with us today. Next time, we're asking Tom your questions on biblical inerrancy, sola scriptura, and how we should read the Bible So look out for it on your podcast feed in a couple of weeks' time. Might even sneak another Tom Wright Unplugged edition in as well. Uh, Please do share with others, rate and review this podcast. Sign up to our newsletter as well at askntwright.com. You can ask your questions that way and receive all the bonus content, including that bonus video I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Stuart in Surrey asking, what do you think about Paul speaking in tongues? And there's the prize draw for a copy of the Bible for Everyone, signed by Tom himself. So do get along to the website, register if you can, askntwright.com, and we'll see you next next time.
You've been listening to the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.